He never asked to read the book, but he was extremely supportive. He asked how it was going, but he didn't say, do anything other than say this. One thing that was really interesting to me, he said, don't let them, them being the band, you know, the publishers, he said, don't let them whitewash it. Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. The Canadian singer-songwriter and poet Leonard Cohen has written some of the most eloquent, powerful, and important popular songs of the past half century. Although many members of the younger generation are only familiar with his modern-day hymn, Hallelujah, that's really just skimming the surface of Cohen's brilliance. For the man who wrote Hallelujah has also given us Suzanne, So Long Marianne, Anthem, Closing Time, If It Be Your Will, and several dozen other songs that musicians will still be covering in 20, 50, 100 years' time. Leonard Cohen is, arguably, my country's greatest living songwriter, and an artist deserving of a thoughtful, eloquent, and comprehensive biography. Thankfully, my guest today has provided music fans with just that. Sylvie Simmons is a longtime rock critic and music writer whose 2012 biography of Cohen, I'm Your Man, was the rare, hotly anticipated biography that lived up to the hype. Written over several years with the support, if not the official endorsement of its subject, I'm Your Man is an engrossing and moving read inspiring to Cohen fans as well as anyone who does anything creative for a living. Leonard Cohen's 80-plus years on this planet have been fascinating, occasionally tumultuous and complex, and his biographer, herself a longtime fan, has honored and celebrated Cohen's life with her book. In today's episode of Travels and Music, Sylvie Simmons and I discuss her personal encounters with Leonard Cohen, what his music has meant to her and so many others, Cohen's reputation as a ladies' man, salacious Canadian journalism, and much more. I was privileged to have her join me, and I hope you enjoy sitting in on my conversation with the author of I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, Miss Sylvie Simmons. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her. And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you want to be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer That you've always Well, before we begin, I mean, I, I won't get too fanboyish here, but I just have to tell you, like... Oh, I'm... you can get as flamboyish as you want. <laughs> it's a good word. I always use flamboyant, and flamboyish is better. Oh, actually, I said uh, fanboyish. It's, oh, uh, I yeah. thought you were flamboyant. You were going to become like a <laughs> and just right. go over the top. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm flamboyant by nature, so, I mean, the conversation's <laughs> young. Perhaps that'll come up later. But uh, I was yes. just going to say, like, I mean, the book was absolutely tremendous. I mean, I have read a lot of music biographies, and it's riveting, truly. And I'm a, I'm a huge Leonard Cohen fan, uh, and I have been for a long time. So, yeah, I was a little, I wanted, I was very pleased that it was, it was uh, the book that he deserved. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you so much. When did you first get into Leonard Cohen? So I first got into Leonard, it would have been in high school. I think I was probably about 15. I remember very clearly I had a a very kind uh, teacher at my high school, uh, and we were on a sort of student council committee together, and he gave me Leonard's greatest hits, and it it was game over after that. I mean, the first song was Suzanne, and then it's the first greatest hits collection. I think it was compiled in like 73 or something, so like a lot of the early stuff. And it was, yeah, ever, ever since I've just been just uh, very taken with his work. Understandable. Yeah. And I, well, actually, my first question for you is I'd like to know when was the first time you heard Leonard Cohen? 
Well, I guess I was a bit younger than 15. I was in London, where I'm originally from, in England. And uh, I used to be mad about music. I kind of guess I still am all of these years later. And um, I used to buy singles, as 45s, as that's all I could afford. But they put out a few compilation albums that were the price of a single. And one was on a Columbia Records compilation called The Rock Machine Turns You On. And there were all of these great artists like Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel. I'd never heard of these people before. I only knew the Beatles. And uh, I heard Leonard Cohen. And he sang Sisters of Mercy. And somehow it just lifted me up from my bed in my little bedroom where I was playing it on a portable record player. And that was it. There was so much mystery and a kind of strange authority in there. I hated authority. But somehow I liked Leonard Cohen's version of authority. And... And it went from there. From there, I guess I interviewed him over the years as a music journalist. And then this 600-page book was, I hope, the final result. (laughs) Well, when was the first time you met him? I'd interviewed him by phone a couple of times because I was in England and he was in America. And then he came over to England in 2001 with um, two women. (laughs) That's very learned. They were working (laughs) with him, I should say. He loves working with women. He loves women not just horizontally, but vertically and every other angle in between. It was a woman, Leanne Unger, who works as his kind of producer engineer. And of course, Sharon Robinson, his co-writer. And they came over to promote, as much as Leonard ever promoted anything, uh, 10 New Songs, which was his first album after coming down from five and a half years in a Buddhist monastery. And we did an interview that lasted three days. Three days. It was a very long interview. I just kept coming back. We kept going. And there was even some phone email, uh, some emails and phoning stuff afterwards to get this big Mojo magazine interview that was covering his whole life, perfect and together. And at the end of that, like everybody else who interviews him, I came out kind of smoking an imaginary cigarette with a slight blush in my cheeks thinking, I've got the perfect interview. <laughs> and when I went back and transcribed these hours and hours of the tape, it was good because you never get a bad interview with him. But he still hadn't really answered any of the questions, you know. Mm. Such a mystery. And so I said, one day I'm going to you know, write a book on him because none of the other books I read on him really aren't. Because I'm lazy as all hell, I put it off for a few years. Why did you put it off? Well, mostly because I was so damn busy. I mean, I've been a music journalist since 1977. And, uh, you know, I was always writing. There was always something to do. And books... They eat away at you, you know, to do a book properly is kind of weird. You're almost a stalker, you know, you're kind of following this person and all of the people that he knew with his permission, of course. Uh, You're doing all of this stuff and you're living his life. You're kind of dreaming his dreams in a very almost weird way. You know, you're you're going through his trash can, you know, you're, you're kind of becoming him in a sense. It's kind of freaky. And it takes up your whole existence. Everything is filtered through Leonard Cohen, whatever you hear when you're having parties, conversations, you know, drinking a drink. Everything somehow is being filtered through Leonard Cohen until this whole damn thing's open, finished, and you can put the bottles out and, you know, (laughs) empty the ashtrays and get back to your real life. Well, what, I mean, after, the book came out in 2012, I believe. Um, yeah. And, and so just as a biographer, like after that, like, how do you deal with it when the book is printed and it's written and the work is done? Like, does it take a while to get over that filtering everything through your, your subject? In a way, there is a kind of like a post book depression, you know, when it, it's kind of published, you're a little bit at odds. But it, that I guess I kind of bypassed in a way. And how I do that is that um, because the, the U.S. publisher, it came out in U.S. before it came out in West now been what about nineteen other countries. Um, when it came out in the US, I'd immediately assumed in that kind of weird arrogance that all writers have that they would put me on book tours and there would be, you know, a big fuss made of me. I'd be carried around <laughs> on a sedan chair, you know, people throwing roses at me. No such luck. Um, they just get on to their next book and they leave you in a kind of limbo. So I set up my own book tour and because Having spent all my life in music, my, most of my friends are musicians and in the music business, whereas writers tend not to really group together too much unless they're working on a magazine together. I kind of went off on my own book tour that I'd set up with the help of musician friends, and I took my ukulele with me because <laughs> guitars are heavy to carry. <laughs> I got very smart. And uh, I sang Leonard Cohen songs. I considered at that time 
strangely, that it would be less nerve-wracking than just reading from a book to people. I thought I could sing Leonard Cohen songs, you know, people can call them out if they like, and if I can do it, I'll do it. And so it, it turned into this little kind of second thing, a second project that had a life of its own, and actually ended up with me getting a record deal for my own songs. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. And like, It sounds like, I wish I could have been there. It sounds like such, such a cool book tour. And I'm a uke player as well, so I was... I was uh, yeah, I, was, I, can I, was, see, I can see a tour coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we should hit the road. Um, but like what... Then we can do it the first non-visual, non-seeing duet via podcast. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There's a plan. Um, how did you structure the like the actual sessions? Like, did you talk about the book for a while and then pick up a song or pick up your uke and, and play? Or like, how did that work? The book was all about structure and the tour was the absolute opposite. It was complete anarchy. It had absolutely no structure whatsoever. I put up a little video pretty much to start with on um I um, just kind of had a friend come over and shoot me and a bunch of people I'd never meet, met before sitting in my bedroom. I thought that was very Leonard Cohen doing one of his songs. And uh, that was famous Blue Raincoat. And it was quite delightful, but I just wanted people to know that I wasn't going to do this kind of jokey uke thing where you just go booby, 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 right. happy, happy, you know, jumping flea as the ukulele is music, that this would have somewhat the dignity as much as I could muster and the sobriety and the and hopefully some of the beauty of Leonard Cohen's songs, certainly the space of his songs, because there's not much music in a, in a ukulele, and there's a lot of space between it, so you can hear the lyrics well. So each show is its own little thing. Sometimes I'd do it on my own, sometimes with a guest musician, I'd Shanghai in certain places, you know. It was really quite remarkable, and, uh, and it just kind of tended to get bigger and bigger, and it went over to Australia, New Zealand, Europe. Quite lovely. I enjoyed to... every minute of it, and uh, I think I could have spent my entire life doing that. Really, <laughs> <laughs> his songs are just so wonderful, and they suit ukuleles. At least that's what I feel about it. Yeah, I think I've played "So Long, Marianne" on uke. That's about it. But I'm trying to imagine "Famous Blue Raincoat" on uke because that's such a sad song in so many ways. Yeah. Well, maybe you can check out that. Uh, you know, there's all sort of different versions of me singing that song. I think one of the saddest is always in a little tiny place in Sydney, Australia, in this room, and there's a little picture of me on stage, and the sound didn't really work at the beginning. It only starts about 40 seconds in, and it sounds so sweet and lonely. Mm. And I guess that's really what the song was about. He was stuck in winter at four in the morning, you know, in December. And yeah, and his girl's off with somebody else, but, you know, hey. It was usually him off with someone else, so fair dues. Right. But a beautiful, beautiful song. Yes, it certainly is. Um, going back to, to actually being in a room with Leonard Cohen and in, interviewing him and spending time with him, you mentioned that it's it's tough to get good answers out of him sometimes, or it's tough to get him to actually answer your questions. I mean, why do you think that is? Do you think that he's fundamentally just a private guy and he's uncomfortable in any sort of interview situation, or what? It's not that he's uncomfortable in it. It's quite different. He's a shy man, actually, a very modest man. And I think it's in, in much the same way as Tom Waits, who I've also sat in a room with on two different occasions and interviewed. He's another very shy man who's much happier giving you Tom Waits in quotes, giving you the character. Leonard Cohen is much the same way. He's a very honest man, so he tells you the truth. But he has this command of language that, not just that poets have, but that politicians have, that politicians in truth in the same sentence aren't often very often seen. But with Leonard Cohen, he kind of says things in this with a certain precision, but at the same time, a sense of ambiguity and a mystery to them, so you can't pin him down. I, was, I remember talking to his cousin, who was much the same age as Leonard, and Leonard didn't have a brother, and, you know, he's, they were kind of almost like brothers because Leonard's father died when he was nine years old and so you know the uncles used to come around with his various cousins so this cousin said well you have to remember that we're Canadians and Canadians are all about minding your p's and q's as we say the same thing in England you know you just don't kind of go above your station be well behaved you know don't show off and I think that Leonard has that very innately you know he doesn't like to show off and he has now this wonderful character 
that he's been taking on stage these last two major tours where he is, you know, the Rat Pack rabbi. You know, he's got his fedora on and his sharp suit and he flings the uh, microphone cord over his arm like Sinatra or some crooner, you know. <laughs> and he's so happy in that because that is very much him as well. There was a very interesting story in, that I found out from my book. It was talking to one of his best friends for his whole life, or from the age of nine, and a, a painter who had told him, you know, uh, who told me rather that when Leonard was first meant to be going on tour, he asked Mark Rosengarten, this painter and sculptor, to come to his place, which at that time was in a log cabin in Nashville, and make him a mask. And I said, what was the mask for? He said, to wear on stage. And I said, and what kind of mask? You know, what was it a mask of? Like a chimpanzee, a tragedy comedy? He said, it was a mask of Leonard. I said, like a death mask? He said, yeah, but it was alive. Don't be stupid. And I said, Leonard was going to go on stage wearing a mask of Leonard. That's very, very significant. You know, he had enough sort of self-possession to know that he was important and what he had to say was his. But he wanted to hide behind this mask and that, you know, there was still a slight distance there, that there was a slight game involved. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I told, so I've I've watched every interview with with the man on on YouTube that I can find, and it feels very intimate and and riveting in so many ways. But there is a certain distance there. But when he's on stage, at least, like I've been I've been watching videos of his latest tours, like it feels very naked. You know, it doesn't it doesn't feel like there he's putting distance between him and the crowd. Like it really feels like he's making love to that room in many ways. I'm not sure. I haven't unfortunately I haven't had a chance to see him, but. That's the way it seems to me on, on video, at least. It's exactly what it is. I mean, he jokes when he plays at arenas and it says, welcome to the other side of intimacy. But he said in such a voice that, you know, <laughs> he believes that he's speaking to them. And in a way, apart from that kind of mystery and, and you know, authority and knowledge and, that I got from first hearing Lana Khan, it was also that intimacy that struck me as a little girl. He was coming to me naked, and I didn't mean that physically naked because I saw a photo of him he looked like he was my granddad I was only a little girl at the time but it was this kind of intimacy that he was telling me a secret or telling me something important you know just me and I think that that's part of the thing that attracts his fans now they go to these shows and they come out as if they've been at some kind of almost like a religious revival you know it's something quite intimate and quite spiritual you know was he I, i've i've gotten sort of um conflicting information on this like how supportive was he as you wrote this book like did he he didn't officially like endorse it or anything but what what were your impressions of how enthused he was that you were working on this well support and enthusiasm you know they're kind of two different things i think i mean i i i got in touch with him before i started writing the book and told him that i was going to do it with you know diligence and dignity and heart, you know, and uh, because I felt that he'd been underserved by biographies, I hadn't seen any that really seemed to capture him, and I said I'd like to have a go at it, and that, you know, I would be talking to people, people very close to him. I didn't ask him to find those people for me, or I just preferred that he didn't veto it, because what happens, when sometimes when you read a bad biography of a musician who's still alive, sometimes when they're even not alive, is because the person who's decided to write that book doesn't get access to the A-list of people, the people who are closest, because generally those people will contact the artist and say, can I talk to this person? And if the artist says no, you know, you're not going to get them. I was just very, very fortunate because I'd asked if Leonard would tolerate what I was doing, and his word was that he supported it. So... I didn't ask for anything official. The other thing is that Canadians and English have a lot in common. You know, we're neither of us particularly pushy, though we kind of are deep down and quietly. But on the surface, we would never kind of brazenly come in and say, hey, Leonard, hey, come on, man, this is the official book, isn't it? And, you know, we just don't do that. And so he was very supportive through the whole process right down to talking to his like ex-fiancés and talking to the mother of his children, talking to his rabbis and fellow monks. He was entirely supportive and gave me all of the access to him that I wanted or needed. And of course, 
a person could have indefinite needs in that department, but at some time you have to step back from it and, you know, get down and, and put together the book that you want to write. He never asked to read the book, but he was extremely supportive. He asked how it was going, but he didn't say, do anything other than say this one thing that was really interesting to me. He said, don't let them, them being the band, you know, the publishers, he said, don't let them whitewash it. Hmm. Don't want a hagiography. It was a really, I think, incredibly powerful, mature thing for a person to say. You know, he didn't want that. I, I asked him some things where I couldn't sort of get other sources for the information other than him and the one person who told me. I would go and sit with him and say, this is, this is a very awkward question, but this person told me this. I'm not going to tell you what my instinct says about this, but I just want your take on it. Is it true? Is it not true? And he would tell me. That's very impressive because if, if you think about it, it must be quite unsettling to have someone, you know, write, write uh, you know, a, a, an attempt to be a definitive biography of your life. You know, I'm not sure I'd want someone digging around in, in all of my secret places. And I'm yeah, just infused. I'm sure in the beginning he wasn't that infused. You know, I think as the process went along, he warmed to it more. This is what I heard from other people, and we've been very, you know, pleasant with each other since. You know, so I can't imagine that he's too horrified. Maybe it's too polite. You know, like I said, I'm too English to ask and he's too Canadian to say. We've seen each other backstage at shows. I've seen him since and uh, it's never really mentioned. It's mentioned by other people who are close to him. But, you know, I don't want to, again, I'm English like the Canadians. I don't want to go blowing my own horn on what they've said. So it's up to everybody else there to decide if they, if they like it. Right. Well, your, your comment about pushiness made me laugh as a, as a Canadian because uh, I... I think I've been emailing you off and on about this interview since January. Um, so occasionally pushiness pays off. Um, even even very polite Canadian pushiness, right? Like there, there's a certain that logic to it. Of you to persist. I was, I've been so ridiculously busy. I've been, you know, doing, I did my own album and I was touring with my own album. been doing a lot of touring this year. So I've often been away from the computer and I'm also working on another book uh, that I can't mention anything about because it hasn't been made public yet, but that's also been taking up a great deal of time and and sending me to New York on a regular basis. So occasionally I'd see your email and think, <laughs> I'll have a look at your you know schedule and think I can't really book anything. Right oh, now. of course, no, I'm just teasing you. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I quite I I understand completely. Are you working on a music book? Can you tell us that? It is a music book. It's something quite unexpected, I guess, for me, which is why I did it. Because normally between biographies, I get back to my, as I like to call it, my lazy self. And uh, I do a book of short stories. And I did a, a book of short stories in between my Serge Gainsbourg book and my Leonard Cohen book. And so I was working on another one, which is turning out quite different. And then suddenly this other project came up. And uh, once you find out what it is, I think you'd realize why. I couldn't really refuse it. Going back to to the book on Leonard Cohen, like you're obviously a, a big Leonard Cohen fan, and you have been from a very early age. As you embarked on this project, you know, was there any part of you that was concerned about uncovering aspects of Leonard's life or personality that were, you know, not so pretty? Like, were you worried that that working on this book would would uh, impact your your impression of Leonard in a, in a negative way? It's interesting. I've been asked that before, and when I've answered it, people tend to think that I'm kind of cold and heartless, and maybe I am, but <laughs> don't think so. But uh, you know, when you've been a journalist as long as I have, which is next year will be forty years, it's it's very strange. You start learning this. You get into this strange habit of a kind of detachment. So, as a human being, I would go, "Oh my God." I can't stand having found out this one thing about Leonard. But in the process of writing the book, there is this detachment the whole time. You know, you kind of step back from the information and you see it as where it fits into the into the story. And the story itself, you know, as you're writing it, again, this sounds perhaps a bit pretentious, but it's almost like a composition, a composition, a musical composition. You're just finding where this piece of information fits in and you then have to go back and 
refigure kind of the earlier part of the music, you know, where you went with that. It's a very, very interesting process, but you have to be detached from it. And so, no, I didn't really fear that. And it's interesting, there really weren't that many skeletons in the closet. Every now and then I would come across something, a lead, that really didn't go anywhere. You know, it was just somebody being spiteful, I'd find out something else. And there were a couple of occasions when he maybe wasn't, you know, the perfect gentleman. As far as the book's concerned, to me, he was always the perfect gentleman. But no, I kind of had that detachment. And it actually feeds into another uh, question I was asked, especially by the Canadians, funnily enough. <laughs> and they wanted to know, because the book came out at the same time as the uh, a General Petraeus's, this American general's uh, biography, which he did with a woman, and there was a kind of scandal about it because yeah, of he course. had, you know, he had sexual relations with his biographers. So people, especially in Canada, were coming straight out and asking, "Did you have sex with that?" <laughs> like, Jesus, he was in my head so long; it would have been like having sex with myself, you know. <laughs> it would have been freaky, you know. <laughs> it's just. What are you talking about? It's just an insane idea. So it's that detachment. You become, as a writer, detached. You just have a story. It's somebody else's story. And when you're putting it together, or I guess you're realizing is you need to get the truth. You really need to get the truth as much as you can. You can't just put in guesses. You have to get facts. But try and make it all part of some beautiful piece, you know some piece that people are not going to read and, and hate, you know. I'm surprised uh, and sort of impressed that, that it was the Canadians who were asking you if you slept with Leonard Cohen. It seems very bold and, and uh, un-Canadian in some, some way. In fact, one Canadian newspaper asked me to write some article about, you know, <laughs> biographers who sleep with their subjects. <laughs> and I just laughed at myself, silly, you know. I, <laughs> wow. I just thought this was such a silly idea. But, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I thought it would have been the British somehow. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) And the Americans, I guess, just got too shy. Well, on uh, this isn't much of a segue, but I was going to ask you about something you said, and I'm not going to ask you if you you slept Leonard Cohen, because I know the answer. But um, in another interview, you said, uh, Leonard has never stopped intriguing and seducing you with his words and songs. Um, the whole ladies' man thing is, you know, it's followed him around for a long time. Um, but there is something deeply seductive about Leonard Cohen. You know, even for me as a straight man, it's like he, he's, he's hypnotizing, really. Um, what, what do you think is seductive about Leonard Cohen? Hmm, where do I start? I mean, getting back to the detached journalist here, part of it is, is, as I mentioned in the book, there's one of the chapters quite early on where he learned to be a hypnotist. And he actually got very good at it. His friends told me that he knew how to hypnotize. So the man clearly had that talent. And part of it is this kind of, you know, one of the chapters in this book, which I actually found in his archives, which he let me have access to, was this book. And one of the chapters was how to hypnotize a room full of people. So I guess that translated later into his, uh, his shows. And so the hypnotic element is there, that intimacy that we've already discussed that's partly from his voice. You know, it's a very interesting manner of singing. In the beginning, it was a little harsher as he was sort of pushing himself to sing. He was writing songs that perhaps were higher than he had the range of at the time. But when he settled into that voice and it became low and sweet, you know, and almost like a sort of French chanson kind of voice, he kind of again managed to sort of get that intimacy over. On a personal level, if you're interviewing him, he speaks to you as if there is nobody else in the entire world except you. His entire focus is on you. It's some either, you know, habit of nature he has or a skill that he developed. I don't know. I think more it just came innately to him. And uh, I don't know what it's like with men. I'm sure it's the same. But certainly with women, if a woman comes in the room, he, he just lights up. He just loves talking to the people he's with. Also, that could be a trick of a shy person to learn how to deflect the information, you know, the interest on them, on the focus onto somebody else. If so, he's a very clever guy, which he is, as we all know. Mm. Very smart guy. 
I think your point about the voice is is right in the money. I mean, even just speaking, like one of the all-time great just speaking voices, you know, that low bass, gravelly sort of register that's smooth at the same time. Uh, I'm reminded of, uh, so Larry King, the uh, broadcaster, is another man who's, you know, been been uh, seen with many beautiful women and, and is known as a bit of a ladies' man. And he was asked one time, you know, because he's this short sort of trollish looking man in some ways. And he was asked, yeah, and he was asked, uh, you know, what's your secret? And he said, never underestimate the power of the voice. Um, so I think maybe that's the key. And I guess celebrity as well, you know. Larry I'm sure that doesn't hurt. You know, certainly yeah. doesn't hurt. But I think that Leonard, you know, tended to have that effect on women back when he was a poet even. So I think the fact that he can write wonderful words and speak so well is a very, very big part of it. But it's hard to say. Some people, some men just have it. Serge Gainsbourg, who I also wrote a book about, you know, who maybe wasn't the best-looking man on earth by many sort of judgments. You know, he had Brigitte Bardot, you know, Jane Birkin, the best-looking women in the world. I love Gainsbourg, yeah. He could write songs for them. And I think really that Leonard, Leonard writes songs for women, you know. I think he, his really ideal is just to have the women sing them. <laughs> I love that. back in singers. I loved that story in the book about when he was learning hypnosis. Didn't he like learn? He attempt to uh, get the the family maid to undress herself. Like once he learned hypnosis or something like that. Yeah, he was just a little kid at that point. That was something I got some uh, some slack from some American um, writers on or critics on that this was sleazy. But you know, he was a kid, probably only about thirteen years old. And my feeling is that the maid probably just unbuttoned a couple of buttons and if you're a young that's that's as good as seduction right right how did visiting montreal uh help you to better understand leonard like what what were your impressions of that city and how did they shed light on on leonard cohen because his life started in montreal like i figured that was the place to start and you know at the beginning of the book i had no real plan like anybody else writing a, a biography you think it's going to be a straight line like a railway line with stations along the way and you'd have to stop at each station you know and write about it but I realized as it was going on that it was going to be much more like a kind of I don't know a, a helix of DNA where all of these elements that made up Leonard kind of just consist didn't really go in a straight line they just stayed the same from beginning to to end so I started in Montreal with no real plans other than to go to McGill University and see if I could see their archives you know could see if I could go to a school and check out their kind of yearbooks and go to the monastery, uh, monastery sorry, the synagogue that his uh, great-grandparents had founded and had been sort of presidents of over the years. And so I went to all of these places and then gradually met people and tracked down friends and people I was trying to get through various different things. So that was very, very helpful just to get the beginnings set down. I also wanted to go when the weather was snowy. I wanted to go so I could see what it was like in these famous Montreal winters where, you know, you just went to nightclubs and danced and drank to keep warm, you know. I wanted to feel what it was like. I absolutely hated it as far as the winters were concerned. I think that the Canadians who live up there are the bravest and strongest and most powerful humans on the planet. It was so cold. I just couldn't bear it. But the people I thought were lovely, there was a kind of a real warmth up there, a real intensity. You could really feel the Frenchness of it. And I was glad to see that in there. And of course, glad to see where his home was, his childhood home, Murray Park along the back and the view of St. Lawrence River. It's great to see those things for yourself to actually stand there or sit in the, you know, one of the seats at one of the pews at the synagogue or talk to his old rabbi. All of those things are just wonderful because you start feeling as well as just reading about you know, the, what the life the person must have had. What surprised you as you were working on this book? It probably goes back to what I was mentioning before, how very much Leonard Cohen was Leonard Cohen from the second he came out the egg pretty much until if you go and see him now or speak to him now, that the things that, that exercised him were still exactly the same from, you know, probably of adolescence or even pre-adolescence on. And that each of these aspects to him were so intertwined that if you took one of these ideas or threads out, if you like, the whole thing would collapse. And so the women 
a huge part of his life, you know, from the fact that his father died when he was nine and he was raised in a house of women. His mother, Masha, who adored him, she was a real archetypal Jewish woman. In fact, when I spoke to his old rabbi, who was ancient, he had taught Leonard Cohen's bar mitzvah class. And bear in mind that Leonard's in his 80s. My goodness. I asked the old guy, the old rabbi, I said, so what was... Leonard's mother, Masha, like, and his eyes misted a little, and he went, ah, Masha. And I said, what was she like? He said, ah, Masha, she was a woman. And I said, well, maybe if I, we could elaborate a little. He said, she was very Jewish. So I guess he had a total Jewish mom who doted on him, and a sister who only recently passed away, Esther, who was a big ball of energy. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman, and adored him as well, you know supported him his big sister five years older was always there for him so he was you know always around women who supported him loved them and he said when he was about 10 or 11 he became interested in him in a let's say romantic way and so he'd always had this thing that drove him the women 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 and often this sense of belonging he loved in that you know he'd have to break up and be in that sense of belonging to be you know write poems about and the depression that came on in his teens that was there it wasn't just the blues, as he said, it was waking up every morning, wondering how he was going to get through the day. That was an important part of his life. The religion, the sort of different paths that he, you know, he explored, even though he was still Jewish, still is, and, you know, a practicing Jew and a very well-studied Jew, you know, very erudite in Judaism. He, uh, you know, he took all these parts, all of these there, the music, the poetry, all of them so intertwined. And that was, I'd never known anybody like that. Usually people change along the way, but he doesn't. He called one of his albums Old Ideas because it's true. It's a bit of a joke. It's exactly the same old things he was singing about in the beginning or writing poems about before he sang, which he was doing in the 50s. Shifting focus a little bit. Do you think he'll ever tour again? You know, I don't think so. I think he might do the odd date here and there if he can get the band. The thing is that Leonard, like maybe like a lot of um, great artists, because he is very, very, if, if you know anything about Leonard, it's that he is very, very, he's very much a, a perfectionist. You know, he so, sometimes take 10, 15 years to write, and that's not an exaggeration, anthem. The great song with There is a Crack in Everything. That's how the light gets in. That song took about 15 years before it was finished. Hallelujah was another long song. Because it's perfectionism, that also translates to the stage. So everything has to be just right. He has to rehearse for a long time beforehand to be very happy. And so he'd need to get this band back together again. And it's such a big band. And they're probably off living their lives, you know. It's hard probably to get them for these one-off shows, which might be hard to do. Touring's easier, but he is, we have to understand, he's not a young man anymore, you know. So it's a really hard work, and he makes it harder work because he does these three-hour shows and about an hour and a half, two hours of sound check beforehand. It's a lot to do. So I'm thinking he'll certainly be making albums. I wouldn't be at all surprised if one comes out by the end of the year. And he's still writing poetry. There was one a poem in the New York Times just recently of his. But I don't think we'll see him on tour. I could be wrong. I hope so. So you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to ask before I let you go, in addition to, to being a writer, you're also a musician. Uh, your first album, Sylvie, came out in 2014. And I wanted to ask, how, how has Leonard Cohen impacted your own music or, or, or your own um, performance style? <laughs> That's assuming that I have a performance style. Um, I just go up there with my ukulele. I used to sit down, now I stand. <laughs> this is a development. But um, not really. I don't think he, he uh, influenced it in any way at all. A couple of people, especially when I was on NPR Weekend Edition, I think it was Scott Simon said, he could hear Lana Cohen in a song called The Rose You Left Me. And that could be true. Maybe that one came from there. But mostly... They actually started before I was working on the Leonard Cohen book and I was just sitting around kind of noodling and staring with melancholy eyes out of the window at San Francisco, my strange adopted hometown and thinking of things and, and these sad songs kind of came out or not really sad so much as just melancholy songs came out. 
No, a few of them are sad. I've got to be honest. Tragically sad. If you like sad songs, this is the album for you. And they just came out and, you know, various musician friends over the years who'd come and stay or pass through would jam on them with me or talk about making an album. And finally, I did it with a very, very close friend of mine, Hal Geld from Giant Sand, one of the greatest bands ever. And they're breaking up this year after 30 years. I've just been touring with them as opening act. Hal Gelb is a wonderful musician, very, has great musical instincts. And so I went into the studio with him in Tucson, Arizona, and we made it live to tape in a day and a half. And then I got a record deal, so I wasn't looking for one, it landed in my lap. So clearly it was meant to happen, and I'm so glad it did. It's been a huge part of my life. There's a million stars up in the sky tonight and I have wished on everyone What took you so long, if you don't mind my asking? 40 years. Well, it was uh, almost exactly 40 years before I made the album that I got up on stage in England in my teens and uh, and I got my guitar out and I stood on stage with my long hair and my big eyes and my sad, you know, two chords, two chord songs, which would be A minor and D minor. I'm a lot better than that now. But I got there and was met to sing with this band and they wanted me to do some Joni Mitchell covers. It was the year that, you know, it was. I think everybody was talking about the album Blue, even though it had come out some years before. And uh, I got up there and I was just complete stage fright. I mean, now I'm like grasping my chest as I say, remembering it, utter stage fright. I guess like Leonard Cohen said he had, but I didn't have any dignity. I just stood there like an idiot. And then finally kind of scurried off the stage and thought, well, I'm not doing that. I'll become a rock writer. It's the old cliche, you know, people become rock writers because they're failed musicians. And I was exactly that. And there were a few other, you know, people, a few other women like Chrissy Hind and Patti Smith comes to mind. Uh, they were rock writers who became musicians. They did really well. And it didn't take them very long worse. I mulled over it for about 40 years and then I did it. How's the stage fright now? Completely gone. I'm the opposite. I love stages. It's really changed. And that happened gradually with the Lena Cohen book tour, I think, because mostly I was in, you know, kind of little record stores or bookshops or tiny venues, sometimes with no stage. And and you'd be sitting there with probably, you know, somewhere between anything between 12 and 30 people. And you just kind of start relaxing around it. And then when I was going to places like New Zealand and Australia, there'd be big rooms and you can't see people in big rooms. That's the great thing when, because the lights are in your face and you can't see the audience. And so I thought, hmm, that's even easier to do big places. And so after a while, you just get used to it. And I kind of love it now. And I'm glad that I'm doing it at this time in my life rather than when I was young. I think it just means so much more to me, you know, like a kid again. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, before I let you go, my last question, I wanted to ask you about this earlier, but um, what, what are or were some of the challenges you've faced as a, as a female rock critic in what is very much a male-dominated industry? It's true. When I started, there were very few women. I wasn't the only one. I wasn't the first one. There were probably, I think, around the world about 10, if I can remember rightly. Maybe less, maybe a few more. But... Uh, you know, when I started as a rock writer, it just hadn't occurred to me that you needed a penis. You know, I think it was really... <laughs> you didn't get the memo. No, and plus nobody ever kind of... You didn't go to school to be a rock writer. You know, 
it was just something that you did as a kind of act of madness, love of music and an utter rebellion, you know, an era when you were just meant to get married or be a teacher or a secretary or something. I was going to be a rock writer. Maybe being brought up with only brothers and not sisters, I kind of just assumed that I was one of the boys or something. But I just did it. I just decided I was going to do it. Initially, I got no response from the UK magazines. And there were a lot of rock magazines back then. They came out every week. But then I moved out to America straight away. I just went to LA and immediately I got access to a lot more people. And within about a week, I had a regular gig and a regular column and, and it never stopped from there. Other than that, you occasionally get some jerk. You know, there's some guy who's going to give you a hard time, either another journalist or an editor who just wants you to go and interview women as if, you know, you can only talk to people with fallopian tubes or something. Uh, you'd get that occasionally. You'd give them a kind of verbal slap or move on to somewhere else. And occasionally in the beginning, I remember a few, a couple of the rock stars were a little insistent that they wanted you for more than an interview. But, you know, you kind of realize that this is your job. And, you know, if you start running around with rock stars, apart from the fact of what you might catch, it would not really be a good way to, you know, keep going at this for years. The sense of detachment, as I mentioned, is a very good thing so it didn't really hit me too hard it just came up every now and then but I think that was not just in the rock industry I think it was in every business that women were in back then you know it was the girls would be sent to you know make the tea for all the men or you get a little slap on the bum as you walk by you know I think that's just something that women unfortunately have had to put up for a long time and maybe hopefully somehow along the line that would change Yes, indeed. Yeah. Do you think things are better now for, for female rock writers? No, because there really isn't much of a rock music business or a rock writing business anymore, if you like to call it what, you know, I just consider the most wonderful life a person can lead as a business. But back when I wrote that you could actually make a small living, you could live like a kind of graduate student or, or you know, when you started as an undergraduate student from writing for magazines Ever since the digital revolution, magazines have virtually gone out of business. You know, the ones that are still going, like Mojo that I write for, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing for them, you know. People don't really make enough even to buy a meal anymore. You can't keep sort of syndicating your stuff around the world because it immediately gets put online. So you just get one use and so you get you a couple of hundred dollars. And really it's, it's a very hard business to get into now so it's lovely that the women are doing it but you know there isn't very many places for a young person to just dig in I just decided I was a rock writer and I was one and I think that might well of course you could do it now with blogs everybody can decide that they're a writer and be one thank the law for that what a wonderful world it is but the people who can do it as a full-time job and just be immersed in it the way I was and you know, and I guess in a way that gives you a kind of knowledge and a certain authority that you feel you have, you know, that maybe some of the instant bloggers may not have. It's, it's a weird world now. It's a bit of a, a world west, both the music business and the publishing business because of the digital revolution and behavior, you know, it's there, nothing we can do about it. Yes, yeah, so certainly. And I mean, the upheaval in the in the publishing business is, is a huge, uh, huge topic that I could talk about for a long time. It's I think nobody knows really what the hell's going on at this point, <laughs> in short. It's um, going to settle. Yeah. It's, a, it's a strange time. And I think it has to settle. And people are gradually working out how to deal with the fact that, you know, most people who are in the creative, any kind of creative work are, are basically content providers for people who can just snatch it and do what they want with it. And, and make a lot of money from it. So I think at some point it will settle down. I noticed that quite a few musicians that I know are doing these kind of, you know, uh, funding sort of, you know, we, I've forgotten the name of them. My brain's a bit dead in the mornings. You know, GoFundMe's or whatever. Right, like crowdfunding. Thank you. That was a term I was looking for, crowdfunding things. And so, um, you know, some people are doing it that way, but finding different ways. And I think one of the, the nice sides of, of the way that everything went belly up with our business, with social media and digital world, is that social media has meant you can keep in touch much more closely with the people who like you. And it's really nice, you know. It's really cool to have people tell you that they've read something you've written or they've got a book you've written or a story you've written or they like your music. And it's actually really sweet not to have that sort of separation that there used to be, you know, between 
the you know creative person and the person who consumes you know what you're doing it is very cool yes it's extremely cool as i'm sure you must think having a podcast Yes, having a podcast is very cool, and it's especially because it lets me talk to people like you. So thank you so much for your time today, and once again, just congratulations on, on the book. It's, it's absolutely tremendous and a real treat for Leonard Cohen fans like me, and thank you so much for your time today. This was, this was a real treat for me. Thanks so much, Zachary. Yeah, we're drinking and we're dancing, and the band is really happening, and the Johnny Walker wisdom running high. And my very sweet companion, she's the angel of compassion. She's rubbing half the world against her thigh. And every drinker, every dancer lifts a happy face to thank her. The fiddler fiddles something so sublime. The women tear their blouses off, the men they dance on the polka dot. It's partner found and it's partner lost. Hell to pay when the fiddler stops, it's closing time. The women tear their blouses off And the men they dance in the polka dot It's partner found and it's partner lost It's hell to pay when the fiddler stops It's closing time Closing time Well there you have it, there's my chat with Sylvie Simmons And I hope you'll forgive me if I got a little um, gushy About her book in certain moments um, But it really is that good folks If you like good storytelling uh, good writing, and just an amazing story about a fascinating man. Um, do check out Sylvie Simmons' book, I'm Your Man. Truly one of the best music biographies that I've ever read. A quick reminder before I let you go that if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, the best way you can help me is to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. This will take you approximately 17 seconds, maybe even less. Um, and it really does make a huge difference, and it gives me some just some inspiration to, to keep doing this. Um, it's always really um, encouraging when I go into iTunes and I see someone's left a new review. So thank you very much to everyone who's done that so far. And if you haven't already, it would really mean a lot to me to go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Until next time, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me today. And remember that life is short. So wherever you are in the world today, whatever you're doing, whatever problems you're facing, whatever's going on in your life, I hope you know that, that uh, it's going to be okay. If, if Leonard Cohen's work has taught me anything, it's that. So take care of yourself, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.